Hello and welcome again to Christian Thought in Our World. My name is Eric Ramirez. I am your host for this uh, podcast. And we've also got uh, our panelists, James Alleman and Johnny Navarro. And we have something special for you today as October 31st will be actually the commemoration of Reformation Day in which we remember the uh, Reformation. It is also has been known as uh, All Hallows Eve, which is where we get the derivative of Halloween. But for those uh, who have been part of a Christendom, it's been a day to remember the saints. But in particular, since the Reformation, we honor the, the remembrance of the Reformation uh, on that day. So today we're actually going to be doing a podcast basically about the Reformation, about the effect that the Reformation has had on our world as obviously our own lives. And we're titling this episode, which is 12, as Legacy of the Reformation. And I'd like to begin with a introduction for those of you who are not aware of the Protestant Reformation or what is referred to as a Protestant Reformation. In 1517, uh, a German monk, Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed his uh, 95 thesis to the church castle or to Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther had been to Rome in 1510, uh, representing the Augustinian order of which he was a part of. And there he experienced uh, some uh, quite alarming things because the people were actually engaging in quite sinful things, you know, and this is supposed to be, you know, the holy city of Rome, right? The, the city where, you know, the uh, apostle Peter, who was supposed to be the head of the church, was a part of, and yet he was uh, quite astounded by the amount of sin that was going on in that particular city, sin that actually extended all the way to the clergy. And so that obviously uh, stayed in his, in, his, uh, in his psyche, and he began to see uh, great problems within, the, uh, within Christendom and within the church. But in, uh, as I had uh, said, in, uh, in 1517, uh, he had posed a 95 thesis, which had to do with basically uh, his, his uh, going against the, uh, the indulgences, which are actually being permitted by, promoted, excuse me, by Johann Tetzel, who was a uh, Dominican uh, friar and preacher who was commissioned basically to sell these indulgences in order that they would be able to uh, create uh, St. Peter's uh, Cathedral or Basilica, which is basically what we have, the great building that we know that we have now in Vatican. And the main thing with Luther was that he felt that because, you know, the papacy was rich, that they should themselves pay for it. But they were actually seeking to do it through the selling of the indulgences. And in that particular, what's it called, a practice, it actually was the idea that you would receive merit upon payment so that you would not have to, in essence, be uh, spend uh, either more time or spend time in purgatory. And John Tetzel had a particular a motto that he used that was very famous, or a famous line, which is, as soon as the gold in, is in the casket ring, or excuse me, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. So being called to recant at the Diet of Worms, Germany, Martin Luther came to be acquainted at that particular time with uh, the former uh, Christian, uh, John Hus, right? Who, who was actually a, uh, a bohemian 
preacher and, and what we would call a proto-reformer. And he was, of course, uh, burned at the stake because he had been challenging teachings of Rome and in particular the supremacy of scripture over tradition. So Martin Luther began changing his theology and the beginning of these ideas is basically what has been uh, come to be known as the Protestant Reformation. He was not alone in this. There were others who also uh, came to, uh, in essence, contribute to the Reformation with their own uh, findings and convictions from Scripture. And that would include a gentleman like Ulrich Zwingli, who was in Zurich, Switzerland, John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, and John Knox in Scotland, who also contributed to Reformation theology or, or theologies. But the evangelical world it ha has a great, uh, great thing to be thankful for. And that is because of the teachings of these men, we have what are called the, uh, the five solas of the Reformation, which are distinguished by the reformers from the teachings of Rome, which in, of course includes sola scriptura, which is in reference to scripture alone, solus Christus, which is Christ alone. We have sola fide, meaning faith alone, Sola gratia, grace alone. And finally, soli dea gloria, which is glory to God alone. And so these are five particular doctrines that the evangelical holds, evangelical churches hold today. And when we mean evangelical, we mean Bible-believing evangelical churches because we have also many churches today that either are liberal that call themselves evangelical or mainline denominations that actually went liberal and they actually do not hold to these particular doctrines. But for those that are Bible-believing uh, churches, we have the Reformation to thank for these particular five doctrines. Uh, in light of that, gentlemen, I want to begin our discussion. And the first point that I have is that what the Protestant Reformation wanted was to reform the church to the fundamental church. So reformers like Calvin and Luther did not accept the caricature of the Roman church that th they were throwing away 1,400 years of church teaching. Luther wrote a work, a work excuse me, called On the Councils in the Church, and there he describes the benefits of Christian teaching, but explain how they were not governed by them, and that they would not want us to be governed by their teaching. They would want us to be shaped by the Word of God. And so this is a, a, a very important point, because we know that Rome claims that the church fathers are actually speaking to their supremacy. Right. And this is actually something else that, of course, uh, the Eastern Church claims. And so what we have here is that in the Protestant Reformation, there's actually a denial of this. And it's a denial being made by looking at Christian history, by looking at what the fathers taught. I want to show an example of this of this particular uh, or a proof, you could say, of this particular thing. And it and it has to do with a uh, letter that Augustine actually wrote to Jerome. And it reads as follows. But as for all other writers however imminent they are, either for sanctity or learning, I read them in such a manner as not instantly to conclude that whatever I there find is true, because they have said it, but rather because they convince me, either out of the said canonical books of Scripture or else by some prob probable reason, that what they say is true. Neither do I think, brother, and, and this is in reference to Jerome, that thou thy, thyself art of any other opinion, that is to say, I do not believe that thou expectest that we should read thy books as we do those prophets or apostles of the truth of whose writings as being exempt from all error. We may not 
in any way, in any, sorry, we may not in any wise doubt. So what we have here is basically Augustine making the point that just because the father said it, it wasn't just like a truth that you accepted. So there's an issue with authority there. And he said that, you know, that the proof had to come from the scriptures or for or in essence or in essence of something of probable reason. Right. Because we do need to be reasoning with the scriptures as well. Right. And bringing out these truths. But it's interesting that he's in essence challenging Jerome on his particular claims because Jerome was was pretty adamant in, in some of the things that he was saying. But he's making an appeal to here that just the way he doesn't just take what the fathers say, he's not going to take whatever Jerome was was to say, and we know that Jerome was actually the one who translated the uh, the scriptures into Latin, and and we, and where we get the uh, Latin Vulgate. Gentlemen, I don't know if you have anything else to contribute to this particular point. I'd like to start with you, Johnny. Uh, actually, I, I will piggyback on everything that you just said, and, and there was there was a huge huge significance uh, regarding the Reformation with everything that Martin Luther did, uh, and we would. I, we recognize that Luther had his issues, both personal and uh, political, spiritual, etc. Um, his anti-Semitism that's on record and all of that. But what we're focusing on is the 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 way that God used Martin Luther and uh, his the impact that he had of the the, the 95 Thesis in 1517, uh, how he uh, how he basically was a spearhead for this uh, reform that affected not only Christian religion, but also politics, uh, both in a positive and in a negative way. So we owe a thanks to what God did through Luther, but we also have to treat him as a cautionary tale of uh, how someone can actually lose their head. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, God used them in a mighty way. In a lot of ways, when you look at people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, because we're all uh, from the United States, and uh, the, Amer the American founding was based upon uh, Christian ideals that were in a lot of ways influenced by Luther, uh, even though Luther may have not been a, a freedom of religion type of person, but it was the movement that he uh, spearheaded, which we saw, uh, we saw the morning star with John Wycliffe, John Huss, et cetera, et cetera, Savonarola. Uh, and so you have these movements that were paving the ways. Luther's just the guy that spearheaded it, but the movements were being pushed in that direction. Yes, I, I think it is clear, especially in, in light of the uh, past podcast that we did on Sola Scriptura, that we were seeing that this this was an idea, particularly the idea that the Word of God is uh, is a real authority that that led to to these particular uh, movements. And I and I think you point out well that uh, while we, for instance, uh, give kudos in a sense, you know, to Luther for spearheading this, uh, spearheading this, you know, as I said, there were others who were also doing this. And, and the main thrust of this is that we were looking to get the, uh, the truth from God himself, right? Not from a church that claimed that their claims, you know, their particular claims were actually the claims of God, but that we know that, that not everything that the church has claimed, and even even Rome herself will say that not everything that comes out of the popes, you know, or the clergy are necessarily uh, of God, right? But it has to be, uh, in, I know in the particular case of the pope, it has to be spoken as a ex cathedra. So it's very important that we understand that when the church, when, when the reformers were looking to do the church, they wanted to go back to the original way that it was done, and that the appeal in the fathers was to the scriptures, and that that's what we were trying to 
return to. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Brother James? Yeah, I wanted to say that um, uh, real quick when I, you know, listen about Martin Luther and I've read, uh, you know, a few of his, well, not completely his works, but some of his stuff, you know, you see that for sure the Lord was working through him. I don't think there is any doubt in our minds. I think we all share in this that that he was used by the Lord uh, and he was very influential in all those different facets that Brother Johnny talked about. But I did want to uh, speak on something. I mean, for those that do not know, we are not speaking about Martin Luther King, right? We're speaking about Martin <laughs> Luther from the 1500s yes. who posted yes. the 95 Thesis uh, on the church doors. But I do want to speak a little bit about reforming the church to the fundamental church, because I think, and, and it wasn't just Luther, like you guys said, there, there were others that were seeing this very slow, very slow um, deviation that the Roman Catholic Church was, was going in. So the direction that they were going in, that was not being uh, backed up by the scriptures. But I want to read something from Jeremiah 6. 13 through 15, because when I look back and at the different things that I've read, the Roman Catholic Church at that point in time reminds me a lot of the nation of Israel and really more the kings of, of Israel that were also doing kind of the same thing. Little by little, they were going away from what the, the law of Moses was telling them to do. And so I want to read this real quick. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. I think this is, of, of course, I am not by any means suggesting that this was fulfilled in the Catholic Church. Obviously, this was fulfilled with the nation of Israel. This was a prophecy that Jeremiah was giving to the nation of Israel and really to, to the leadership of Israel. But it, you know, like we have that saying, history repeats itself. I do think a lot of prophecies that were fulfilled in the scriptures, they, they kind of, they re, everything is kind of repeated in, in a sense because we as fallen humans continue to do the same type of sins. And we, you know, like it says, the dog returns to its own vomit. I feel that the leadership here of, of what we would at that time call the universal church, the, the, the holy Catholic church, was deviating into what would eventually be an apostasy that as we would uh, talk about it now because of their uh, differences when it comes to the gospel, to the justification of, of us in front of the Lord. And you see here that they, when they were selling the indulgences, they were greedy because they were taking this money and using it for themselves. They were by no means, didn't. I don't really think they truly believed in 
the doctrine that they were talking about. Yeah, they maybe believed in purgatory, but they were obviously taking advantage of it. And then there was other things that they were doing because they weren't allowing um, the gospel, the true gospel to be uh, set forth into the world. And I know we're going to get into that a little later. So I want to just kind of speak about that because you see the same thing that was going on with Israel was going on with the with the Catholic Church at the time. And um, it's just a fair warning to show that the Lord used Martin Luther and also John Calvin and many of these other reformers to, in a sense, overthrow that church. It was never the same. We can say that they still have a lot of power in the world and that they and that they have a lot of money and uh, even influence to a certain extent. But the church was never the same. These these uh, breaks in the church to eventually have all these different types of denominations, whether you agree with all these denominations and cults and all that or not, and how that went about, it changed the church. They were overthrown. It was never the same. And it was somewhat of an exile. Uh, and that's the kind of connection that I'm trying to make here. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I agree with you. You know, we have that famous line from uh, that scholar, Spanish scholar Santana, where it says uh, those who who uh, who are ignorant of history are, are doomed to repeat it, right? So we we know that the scriptures, that's the, the purpose that they serve, right? That we may learn from them. And that it's not only that, you know, we may not do it, but that if we do have that sin pop up again, we can recognize it and we all we will also know how to deal with it, right? Because we are called to to make judgments. Uh, having uh, dealt with that particular point, let's go to point number two, which is that another great benefit of the Reformation was that the gospel is re restored to world proclamation. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that if we look at the Catholic Church, it really was about tradition, right? And salvation was really being spoken in terms of the church, right? So there was this concept that there was no salvation outside of the church. But we see that in the, in the Reformation, it's no longer really that the focus, but the focus is sola Christus, right? It's the, and, and sola fide. In other words, having that faith in Jesus Christ, that is what the gospel is about. And one of the things that uh, I've seen is that, you know, that now that the gospel was being preached in its uh, proper context, you know, people were basically trusting in the hierarchy and their priests, right? So as I said, you know, the, they could now look at Christ as their savior. And I like what uh, uh, Henrik Bullinger, who succeeded us, Zwingli said in, in, a, in what's called in, in Zurich, which is that he said that when he was describing what happened during the, uh, the Reformation because of the, refer of the preaching that was going on, it says a rush of all sorts of people, in particular the common man, uh, to these evangelical sermons of Zwingli's, in which he praised God the Father and taught all the people to replace their trust uh, their trust in God's uh, to uh, other people to place, excuse me, their trust in God's son, Jesus Christ as a single savior. And, uh, and then it says one of these uh, common people who rushed to hear Zwingli in the 1520s was a young student by the name of Thomas Platter. Right. And this was, and he actually tells of hearing a sermon by Zwingli that was expounded so powerfully. It says that I felt as if someone was pulling me up by the hair. So there was some very, very much uh, on fire preaching that came across because of this, and I, and I like to use this example of Ulrich Zwingli having that impact, you know, that he did uh, in Switzerland. And so 
this is one of the things that we see that now that you know that the uh, we're having we're returning back to the scriptures. Now we have the proper understanding of what the gospel is. So I'd like to again ask you, Johnny, if you have anything to add to this particular restoration of the gospel. Uh, yes. Well, there's a couple of things. I, uh, just before I get into that point, I just wanted to let people know that uh, there was been an update with, uh, with uh, StreamYard, which is a service that we used to do the broadcast. So now we're not only broadcasting on Facebook, we're, face we're also broadcasting on YouTube, but now we're also broadcasting on Twitter at the same time. So we're all on all three platforms as we speak right now. Now, uh, okay, what, one of the things that I, that I wanted to say is that one of the one of the things that is so significant about the Protestant Reformation is that it came at the right moments. The the pieces came together at the right moments. What you had was in 1516, Desiderius Erasmus had published the Greek New Testament for, in, in, from the Greek to to the Latin, and in some ways it was very controversial because he was actually correcting Jerome's Vulgate. Which had, which had been actually corrupted. It was a scandal to actually say that the Vulgate had been corrupted, but that was what Desiderius Erasmus, uh, the, uh, the, the humanist uh, uh, scholar, uh, humanist not in the modern sense, in the ancient sense of going back to the sources, ad fontes is the Latin phrase. Uh, and so when Luther, when Luther nailed the 95 Theses, it was... It was in 1517, which was right after the publication of the Greek New Testament. And one of the notes that he made was that the Greek word uh, metanoia, which, where Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew, where, he, where it says metanoia, he, that means repent, whereas in the Latin Vulgate it said do penance. And this was, this was a peak, just kind of like a, a peak under the veil of misunderstanding that existed within the Middle Ages, partially probably caused by Jerome. Uh, and, and so one of the one of the issues that is is beautiful is that as the as 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 our understanding and our knowledge of the original languages and the original culture came to light, he then published the the Bible in the German language in the tongue of the people. There were other German translations, but but Martin Luther's translation of the Bible was so significant that it actually was like the foundation of the German language. Like it it was huge. Uh, in terms of the impact for the German culture. And uh, Martin Luther, uh, when he translated that, he was allowing people to hear, because remember, the, the masses were done in Latin. And here yes. we had Luther, who was preaching in German, in the language of the people, and he was making the Bible available in German, in the language of the people. So you have all of these things that are taking place at just the right time, as we rediscover these truths from scripture, because not only was it not only was it in the language that people didn't understand, but it was very difficult to get the Bible. So this is where Gutenberg comes in with his press. He had invented the printing press. And so now people are able to mass produce the Bible instead of having to just wait until, uh, you know, you have someone hand copy uh, a copy of the Bible. And so uh, just to finish up my thought, I would just say that one of the most significant verses that Luther said that he, when he read this verse, it said he felt like he had been born again and that the gate of heaven had been opened and he was able to walk through. And that was in Romans 1, 17, where he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And he realized, and then he wrote down a note on his Bible, alone. He said that justification 
is by faith alone and that there's nothing that we could do. It was only on the basis of the righteousness because he had read a commentary by Augustine where Augustine dis discovered or, or stated that the righteousness by which we are saved is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that come, comes from God. And that's why the difference between the Roman Catholic uh, perspective and the, and the Reformed perspective is that we can say that we have peace with God because we have his righteousness. We, there are no more merits that need to be discovered. Sanctification is a different situation where we struggle and we fight and we want to serve and we want to love and, and we want to just continue to, to fight the good fight. The righteous man falls seven times a day, as the proverb says. But the important thing is that in our relationship with God horizontally, the, the discovery of, of knowing what the gospel was tells us that we have peace with God by faith. And that's in Romans chapter five, verse one. Amen. Yeah, and that's a, that's a very important point, particularly when, when we're speaking about our evangelical theology, right? And uh, one of the things that I know that, that uh, also was an issue in, in the Reformation, and that's why we have Reformed theology, is had to do with the issue of the will, right? And so that is a big factor in there because we know that the Reformers believed that God was sovereign, right? And that if salvation was of God— it didn't, it, ha it didn't have to do with man. Whereas with Rome, because you have the works, even though it's claimed to be done within grace, you're, it's still a work that you've got to do, right? A work that you've got to do in, in order to achieve salvation. Whereas in the great truth that Martin Luther learned from the scripture, and, and it was actually a great thing to note that I did not know about, about him having read the commentary with Augustine was that, that that was a great aid in being able to learn that, it's not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ by which, you know, we are we are achieving this great uh, salvation that God has given to us. Brother James, uh, what what are your thoughts on this particular issue? Well, I do think it's very interesting that the, the printing press was invented in 1436. Uh, but of course, we, we're not going to say, oh, right when the printing press started, everybody had all these works and all. Well, no, it, it took a long time still. Uh, but you see almost 80 years after is when all these things started taking place. And then as the gospel now, the true gospel is being spread out, the printing press is now taking over and, and people are getting their hands on, on the Bible. And as Brother Johnny said, in, in the German uh, nation, they were getting this fresh translation of, of the biblical um, scriptures and they were able to read for themselves if the Catholic Church was speaking truth or not but what I do want to speak about is so the Catholic Church we, we have the, the Roman Catholic Church we have to give them props because they did go out into the world and to a certain extent disciple and baptize all these uh, nations, and they and they and they took over. And then we saw when the nations in, in, on the Western Hemisphere um, came to be, they they were they came to be uh, under the umbrella of Christendom, and that's due a lot to the Roman Catholic Church. But what I do want to speak about when we we're talking about the gospel being restored in this world proclamation, because we're not saying that well the Catholic Church had stopped. Uh, going out into the world and, and creating disciples. 
But what we're talking about is the true gospel, right? Which we, we kind of, when we're bringing about the five solas of the Reformation, in a way, that is that is a, a short sum, summation of the gospel in its totality because we're speaking about Christ as being the way to the Father, the way to heaven. We're speaking about grace alone, an unmerited favor that the Lord is giving uh those that he has chosen and by grace alone uh i'm sorry by faith alone and to the glory of god alone through uh through sola scriptura you're seeing that the, now the true gospel is going out because as i keep making this comparison between the roman catholic church at that time and the the jewish leadership and the nation of israel that was going on I have these words that Jesus gave to the leadership of Israel, and this was in the first century, uh, where it's in uh, Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15, where it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the principle that we're seeing that if you're going out there like the cults and you're being and you're working and you're working to teach people what you think is the gospel, but if, but it's not the true gospel. You are making them a child of hell. You're 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 putting yourselves into this uh, judgment that is going to be given to you because you, as leaders, as ones that are now looking at those that are under you when it comes to discipleship, and you're not bringing them uh, to the truth, you're going to be judged for that. And what we're seeing here is this, the Reformation brought about the true gospel. And it brought it to the world because, as Brother Johnny mentioned earlier, the influence was to the entire world, not only religiously, but in politics and in, the, in philosophical thinking and scholasticism, as we see later on in the Scholastic Reformation. So this was a big impact to the entire world, but it had to be done by the true gospel. Well, one of the things that, that it has been obviously the error of the Roman church is their focus on tradition, church tradition. And I think that that's what, so one of the things, for instance, that Brother Johnny and myself have had a discussion about is that when you look at the church, and a lot of times we talk about the, the Catholic church or the Roman Catholic church, but if you really think about it, even at the time of Luther, you really just had the church. What happened was that you started to have a general corruption within that church, but the gospel was in essence still being preached, it was not condemned. It's not until the Council of Trent that you really have the condemnation of, of the gospel really being done so that the gospel of, of Christ has been there, but it's the Reformation that actually takes it and really gives it wings and spread it uh, to the world again, right? Because we know that the kingdom of God is actually growing, right? It has been growing, and we actually see the Reformation as being obviously a, a great expansion of that. So now I'd like to go to the uh, third point, which has to do with the authority of the local church. And so this is an interesting point because what happens is that with the, with the, with the church, the Western church in particular, right, being under Rome, 
you know, it was basically a unified body. And so in essence, the states were, were being guided or, or were being followed or dictated by Rome when it came to religion, right? So what happens is that now when we have the Reformation, now we have splits, right? Because now we have, in essence, the, uh, the churches, we have different churches developing, right? And so this is always a, a big argument within, uh, within Catholics towards uh, the whole Reformation thing because they're saying, oh, we're, we're being divisive. You know, Christ prayed that we would be one, you know, so the Catholic Church, that's why the, we have the importance of the Catholic Church. But the big problem with that is that even though while they, they are, for instance, a religion by name, in practice, it doesn't really uh, seem to compute out. And so when, when, when we look at uh, the way the churches actually, the evangelical churches ended up developing, it seems to me that there was actually more, more cohesive uh, oneness in the sense that when we look at the five solas, all churches are in agreement with that. Whereas today, when you look at Catholic churches, they're not all in agreement. You have churches where they're actually giving mass to people who, for instance, uh, are supporting or actually uh, doing abortions. And this is a big problem because that, from what I understand, that's supposed to be a mortal sin. And yet, you know, there's no, uh, how do you say, a church discipline being practiced. So to me, it's it's one of those things where, like, what's the point in being, you know, the particular Can I church? For a second? Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say uh, one of the things that and I guess this is where we can get into the cultural aspect of this. Uh, I know we're talking about the authority of the local church, but you're touching on this. But we need yes. to understand because the, the, uh, when you're talk, when you're listening to people like Catholic Answers uh, or, or organizations, Roman Catholic or, mm -hmm. or apologetics organizations like that, what they try to talk about is how they have all this unity because they have a guy, that, they have a man that can say, thus saith the Lord or speak ex cathedra. They have ecumenical councils and they have these infallible statements and we know what we know because the church has told us and God has given us a church and et cetera, et cetera. Well, when you look and, I, and I'm using American politics, but this could be done worldwide, but let's look at American politics for a second. What percentage of Roman Catholics vote for pro-choice, pro-gay marriage candidates? What percentage of Roman Catholics actually use contraceptives? We must remember that in the Roman Catholic Church, contraception is not is a sin, unless a, a, a woman needs it for medical purposes, not, not for the purpose. They do not allow it for the purpose of preventing uh, pregnancy, but they do say that contraception is a sin. Be and they also say that homosexuality is a sin, they say that abortion is a sin, and yet there, there are many, many, and I'm not saying 10% or 5%. They're, they're a very high percentage. I don't know if it's in the 30s or the 40s. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but many of them are voting for pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, pro-contraceptive uh, uh, candidates. And so you, it makes you got to wonder, like if you're a priest and you, you're at your parish, how many of them are actually believing what your church is teaching. In fact, does the priest himself believe all of these things? But part of this issue has to do with the issue of the authority of the church in particular, because at the time of the Reformation, you had not only, you, you, not, you didn't just have, you know, the, the, the cardinals and these authorities, you, you had Rome, but you also had the political rulers such as the emperor. And you had a lot of corruption where people would buy the papacy or they would, they, there were so many, so much political corruption uh, in, in terms of trying to buy offices or, or trying to have more and more power, uh, power grabs in a lot of sense. So you have all of these things going on. You look, for example, at King Henry VIII. 
he wanted a divorce from his wife, Catherine. And so since the church refused to give him one, he decided to start his own church. And it became a political revolution in that, look, I am the head of the church here. I excommunicate you, even though the Roman Catholic Church was excommunicating Henry VIII. So when, when Luther start, does his reformation as he spearheads it, he's saying, in Germany, we're the church of Germany. We're the real church. And then other churches are coming out and they have. And so this is where we have state or state churches that are being because they lived in a sacral society. There was no such thing as the, you know, the, the separation of church and state as we have here in the United States. They distinguish between the authority of the court, clergy and the authority of the civil magistrates, but they worked together. So if you were in the Inquisition and the Inquisition found you guilty of heresy, they would hand you over to the civil authorities and the civil authorities have to do what the church said. This is something that did continue on even with Luther, even with Henry VIII and the Anglican Church. It happened in Geneva with, with Calvin when they, when they burned Servito, uh, Miguel Servito to, to, at the stake. There were many uh, Anabaptists who were uh, executed and so on and so forth. So this was part of the bad impact that these things had. Uh, but out of but out of that was the concept that we don't need permission from a bishop, you know, hundreds or even thousands of miles away in Rome to tell us what we're supposed to do in our particular church. Yes, and and actually, there you kind of got into a little bit into our fourth point, which is uh, civil rule and how it was uh, reconstructed. But I just wanted to I wanted to make a quick point that you know to look, for instance, in our day, going back to the argument of of unity. And because to me, it's really an issue of authority, right? It's really an issue of authority. And one of the examples that I wanted to use is, you know, the whole uh, uh, child child abuse scandal that, you know, that has uh, uh, arisen in the priesthood. Now, it's not itself that they've had this issue because evangelical churches and even synagogues and, and other groups have this problem. So it's not, a, it's not an issue of this sin popping up, but it's an issue of how, the argument that they make, for instance, they're trying to say, well, if we have this authority, we have the certainty, but why is it that, for instance, if they have that, that certainty and they have that authority, that it is so prevalent within their system? That is, I think, the, the problem that, that it shows that on a practical level, it doesn't work. And I think that that's why uh, we also have, I, I think that there's also a case that can be made that when you look at the, uh, the church fathers, that they actually were not acting in other words, while we do know that they, they looked uh, highly at Rome within, you know, in, in the early church, that they were not acting necessarily with this unanimous acceptance of the authority of Rome. They, they, had their own, they had their own authorities. And so I think that the Reformation, in essence, brought this back. And this is actually, for me, a very important point of why I'm a Reformed Baptist. Because when you look at, for instance, Presbyterians, I have great love and a great uh, unity with many of the uh, beliefs within the Presbyterian church. But I do not agree, obviously, on their view of baptism, but the other thing has to do with hierarchy. And while I do see certain benefits, as certain brothers have pointed out, where like, you know, if you have an issue in your church, it's kind of nice to have, you know, another authority can come upon and, and, and bring correction. But what happens when the system is corrupted? What happens when the whole system is corrupted? And now your church has to be bowing down, in essence, to that particular thing. It's, it's, it's almost like in politics. It's even like, like we talk about the United States, you know, federal versus state issues. You know, we, th there's a reason why we're called the United States 
of America, right? Because there's supposed to be still a, an authority that's important within the states. Well, I feel it's the same way with the church where the local authority is, is very, very important. Brother James, do you have something to comment on this particular uh, issue regarding the authority of the local church being brought about of the Reformation? Well, no, I just think kind of piggybacking, piggybacking actually on your point, uh, Brother Eric, is um, because the, the authority is, is kind of given to the local church now um, to a certain extent, when her heretical doctrine is being promoted by your your um, authorities, right? Let's say the authority of the local church, but they have their authority. Uh, in a sense, they can step in and say, no, this is wrong. This is, uh, this is incorrect. This is not biblical. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how the Catholic church works now. And I don't know how it truly worked back then. I, that's maybe a, a, a gray area for me, but you know, just realistically, with our church, if we were to be under the head of of of, a, of some type of, of union of churches, and we saw that these guys were going off, we could easily say, "Sorry, we're out," and nobody could touch us. Nobody could do anything to us. But I'm not sure if that was the case back then. So you do see somewhat of a of a of a freedom that is given. But we still obviously have the authority that is given by the scriptures to, you know, help the poor, help the widow, be beacons of light in our communities. And now we don't have to say, well, we have to wait until the authority tells us it's okay for us to do this. No, we do it because the Bible tells us so. And they're actually, Christ is the ultimate authority and his word, which is the Bible, is where he has spoken and we can read it. So that is where the authority lies. And I see this, this freedom that is given that kind of started in the Reformation. Now, sometimes that freedom is taken advantage of, and that's why we have cults. But I, I think it was, for the most part, a very good thing, because if you're in a, in a, in a good church, in a right church, in a biblical church, and, and as you can say, you go to the scriptures to prove that, hey, you, you can do a lot for your community and you don't have those hindrances. Yes, and and we do have an example in a uh, in one in the previous pod, podcast where we're dealing with evidences from the fathers. Where uh, I think I don't I don't remember uh, which particular church father might have been Augustine who actually mentioned, you know, when he was speak uh, arguing against the Arians that he was saying, "Look, we have, for instance, our uh, our creeds, and you have yours, right? And in other words, your your creed doesn't 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 have any authority here, and my creed doesn't have an authority, but we do have an authority of which we we can appeal to." And that, and that has to do with the scriptures. You know, so piggybacking on this, I want to get now to the, the fourth point, which is may, civil may I rule. May I make one more comment? Okay, sure, go ahead. Yeah, okay, yeah. And the, and the, the quotation was from Augustine where he talked about uh, the, the Arian had his council of Ariminum and Augustine was saying, I'm not going to quote Nicaea, you don't quote Ariminum, let's just go to yeah, the thank you. But but the issue with, with one of the things that you mentioned on on the papacy, and I wanted to make this point clear: if you're a Roman Catholic watching this video, one of the things that that Roman Catholics like to say is, "Well, the Pope has this authority, but he only speaks infallibly and with uh, the supreme authority of jurisdiction when he speaks from the chair or ex cathedra." For the Latin words, the problem is that when you look in early history, you can find places where the early fathers will say something very grandiose about Rome, you know, the, the, the capital city, the chair of Peter, 
the, the Prince of the Apostles, Keys of the Kingdom, you'll find this language. And then there's a book called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, written by our Roman Catholics, uh, where they get into these kinds of arguments. But what you find in church history is that you like you find a lot of flowery language about authority to people that have apostolic sees or, in, or are in wealthy churches or, or, or churches that have political power. Uh, but but you also have you also have examples on the other side of that where you will have the bishop of Rome being rebuked by church fathers. So there was a church father uh, by by the name of um, I think it was I can't remember if it was Victor who was rebuked by Irenaeus because he had actually uh, condemned an entire region of bishops. And Irenaeus can, uh, rebukes him for doing that, and then he changes his mind. Zosimus was a bishop of Rome who had actually lifted a condemnation against the, Pel the Pelagian and Pelagius and Celestius heretics, and then he was rebuked by uh, Augustine, and eventually it was Zosimus who changed his mind. The bishop of Rome, the pope, he's the one that reversed course. Now the Roman Catholics will say, but he wasn't speaking ex cathedra. Well, that's assuming that this concept of ex cathedra being infallible and all of these things that Vatican I says in 1870 are a part of the belief system of the time of the early fathers. That's being assumed, but it's not actually found in them. And then you have, of course, Pope Honorius, who was actually condemned as a heretic by the 6th, 7th, and 8th ecumenical councils. So do, did they believe that the Pope was infallible? Clearly, they did not view. And, and so when you look at it, and I would recommend a book uh, called Perspectives on Church Government, where you, you find a, a number of different perspectives about how church government is. The, you, have, you have the idea where you have a, a bishop who's in charge of a bunch of churches, which you have in the Anglican Church. And then you, but we as Reformed Baptists in particular, we hold to the belief that our local church has jurisdiction over our church, and we have no jurisdiction everywhere, anywhere else, and they don't have jurisdiction over us. That's our particular form of church government. Yes, thank you. Yes, it's a, that, that is an, an, important, an, an important factor in that. But I do want to get to the next point, which has to do uh, with uh, civil rule being uh, reconstructed. And so one of the things that we were talking about is the whole concept that when you look at, for instance, when the reformers uh, did uh, bring, these, uh, these, uh, bring changes to the church, uh, one of the things obviously that also happened is that there was a break off with the governments, right, that were along with these churches. And so just the way we have this uh, authority of, of the local church, we also have the authorities uh, of civil, of the civil government. So what happens is that now you have more importance also being given to the civil governments or to the state government, because they're no longer depending on Rome. They now have these particular issues that are being dealt within their own region. So it brings more power to a more local level. But another thing that we see is we also begin to see also an aspect of tolerance, like for instance, in Holland. In Holland, there was a movement of tolerance. They're known, you know, we, we actually know Holland today as being tolerant, but in a very, very sinful way because they actually tolerate sin. But back then, it wasn't about tolerating sin. It was about tolerating religion. So you could be, you know, of a different church, even be a Roman Catholic in a sense, and you would not be persecuted in Holland, you know, and this had to do because there was not this particular view that Rome had of the church. But uh, another point that I did want to make is that the development of the separation of church and state, I still consider it to be Reformation thinking because this is something that happened within uh, re, uh, Protestant, Protestant refer, uh, Reformed uh, countries, such as the United States, right? We did have Catholics here, you know, and Catholics have always been a part of the United States, but this was largely a Protestant country. 
and the and the whole thing is that the the idea comes, you know, because of the fact that of the experiences, because of the, of the conflicts that that came about, right? So, for instance, the uh, the Puritans, a lot of the Puritans who came here to the United States, they didn't come right actually right from England. A lot of them actually came from Holland, and the reason why is because what they were actually looking to is to to be part of a truly Christian nation, one that would actually you know uh, uh, push. For the righteousness of God, and obviously, as the states were developing, the the I guess you could say the error again was popping up of of a state church because we had these different states that were for for different uh, uh, what what they would call religions, but it was really denominations. And so, finally, in order to make this a uh, federation of nations work, you know, they they had they they understood that there had to be this uh, tolerance and separation of church and state. And I actually think that the scriptures themselves, I think that God Himself has given that example. When we look at the Old Testament, because when we look at the Old Testament, how did God set it up for Israel? Were the priests, king, and, and in other words, were they church and state? No, they would represent the church. And then you have the line of Judah, right? You know, did they get to be priests? No, they alone were, were the ones that, that uh, could, could only be king. So you see a separation there of civil government and, and in essence, and, and of church government. And I think that that's one of the uh, realities that, that we get out of you know, bringing it out of scripture instead of having this authority that is in essence asserting itself. Uh, Brother Johnny, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, Brother James, what, what, uh, any thoughts on this particular issue? Well, the problem between the, the belief of church, uh, the separation of church and state that we have today is that there is this common idea that, the church, you know, is doing one thing and the state can do something else. So they don't have to be religious. Um, I do not see that um, biblically. And to my knowledge from the, some of the works that I've read by some of the reformers, the whole point of this civil ruling was when the church was going off and doing their thing, they could not tell the state, uh, of that they're not correctly uh, enforcing the laws, but if unless they were biblically wrong, in other words, if they were supporting um, unbiblical, you know, decrees. Let's say, for instance, uh, for lack of a better one, uh, abortion. Right? We would all agree that biblically the church would be against that. So when the state is enforcing that the church would get involved and tell them, hey, what you're doing is wrong, this and this and that. But they are not involved in taking matters into their own hands, right? And the same with the state does not take matters into their own hands when it comes to this church deciding, uh, you know, they're going to do the, the preaching first and then the, the singing after, you know, stuff like that. So the separation is not meant to, you can go morally your own way. You still have to abide by, by the scriptures. So the church, so we as, as, a, as the priests, right? We're in the, in the New Testament where we're called the, the kingdom of priests. We have a certain obligation that we're doing. And then so the civil authority is really under, right? They're like vice regents of the ultimate king, right? Who's that? That's Jesus. So you still have to, you still have to be in line morally and you still have to you still have to do things correctly 
but there's situations where now there's there's a separation. There are certain authorities that the church doesn't get involved in with the with the civil law and civil authority, and then there's authority that the civil the civil uh, rule does not get involved with the church. And I, I think we all agree on that, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Actually, well, I did it, have, just remember something that I wanted to say. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. And this is actually an anecdote because I was uh, talking to someone that I won't name the person, but uh, I was talking to someone a few months ago and uh, we got into discussing the issue of the separation of church and state. And because in, especially in Western culture with the rise of secularism, the idea is that if you are being religious, uh, if you're in the public square, in other words, in the area of politics, education, or whatever, that you have to leave your Bible at the door, your religion at the door. They have no place in the public square uh, because of, of the separation of church and state. And they say, and they'll constantly say, this is in the Constitution. When I was in high school, I remember my teacher, my government teacher, told me, he says, this phrase is not in the Constitution. This is a public school teacher, and he actually was yes. not a Democrat. But what he said was that, no, what this was is that it was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a friend of his. And what he was talking about, and then I later on I, I listened to David Barton and others uh, to learn a little bit more about this, and that is that at the time what you had were churches, because the, the, the United States at the time of the colonies and, and afterwards, this was not a, a country that was predominantly atheist or agnostic or deist. There were atheists, agnostics, there were, but, but the culture was predominantly a very church-based, whether it be a Protestant, Roman Catholic, or even Jewish. It was a predominantly a faith-based culture. So the belief in God was very much a part of the daily lives of people. Of going to a place of worship was very normal, very common in the culture. So what you had were churches fighting against each other and sometimes trying to, to impose themselves, shall we say, on another church. And so here you had this preacher who was concerned that this other church was going to try to impose themselves on him. And he said no. Thomas Jefferson says there must always be a wall of separation between the church and the state, namely that the church must be protected from the intervention of the state. Thomas Jefferson did not mean by that that the church cannot interfere in the affairs of the state because the whole point of, of being in the United States, of being in America, is that everyone has a place at the table to give their opinion, whether they be Christian, Jew, or, or even atheist or deist. They all have a place at the table. They all have the right to discuss and give their position. But the issue is that, and this is the point of the Reformation, this is the point of, of being basically an American, is that, you know, right now the president of the United States is Joe Biden, or whoever the president is at any time. But at the time of the make, making of this stream or video, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. President Joe Biden has no authority over anything that we do at our church or anything that they do at your church. Uh, thank you, Johnny. Uh, I do want to do a little reminder that we're, we're getting down to about five minutes from the hour. We may go over. But the last point is actually a very, very important point. And while we were mentioning, you know, we talked about the uh, civil authority being reformed, the, the authority of the local church being brought in, you know, the uh, proclamation of the gospel, going back to the, uh, to the fundamentals. 
education is actually a very huge thing that the Reformation had on all the world. So the fifth point is education for civilians heightened by the need to hold to the Bible. And so one of the things that we see is that because of the fact that the Reformation brought a big emphasis on sola scriptura, that means that you, you must make judgments based on what you are learning from God, right? So what did this require? This required for people to have to know their Bibles. And because of the fact that we now have the ability of people being able to, in essence, own a Bible, right, through the printing press, and in particular in, in the Gutenberg press, it wasn't so much that there wasn't a press, but that he made what's called the, the movable type. So it actually made mass production uh, easier. And being Gutenberg, that means that it was in Germany. And where was it that, you know, the, re the reason, one of the reasons, by the way, that they say that the 95 Thesis had such a big effect was because of the fact that Luther students were the ones who actually printed the stuff and disseminated it all over, all over uh, Germany. And that's what actually caused the uproar. But because of this need to have an understanding for the Bible, that means that the common man needed to learn to read, which, by the way, had another effect because it wasn't just men who needed to read the, the Bible. Women did too. So this created a, a quite a, a, quite a uh, revolution in the sense that not only did it bring education to the common man, but also to women because are women not to teach also the younger women, right? Are they not to teach, you know, or even our children, right? So they needed to know this. And so one of the things that, that in my research that I found out is that actually the Calvinist movement was actually probably a big promoter of free education. So this idea of free education actually came from the Calvinist movement because they saw the need in the cities and the towns for the people to be educated so that they could be what? They could be good Bereans, right? What did the Bereans do? When Paul, and you're talking now about an apostle, was speaking of the truths of Scripture, what did the Bereans do? They went to see if those things were so. Now, mind you, they didn't go and read their Bibles, right? Because they did not have that ability at the time. They would have gone to their churches to see what, what it probably said in the scroll. But this is one of the ways that we see that we who are living today, we are so blessed. Because not only do we have access to the Bible, but we have access to many Bibles. And so we should not take that for granted. We should actually really take advantage of it because we God has given us a great gift and being able to do that. And so one of the things that we see is that that's a very big contrast to what was happening, for instance, in the medieval period when the church, when the church of Rome was in power, because it was really only the hierarchy or the clergy or people who were, you know, in, in civil, in, uh, in government that were able to be educated and be able to have, you know, access to even be able to read something like, like the Bible. And so one of the things that we see as a result of that, and I think this is one of the things, for instance, that uh, I believe Luther actually uh, wrote about uh, in his because of his trip in 1510 over to Rome, is how superstitious the people were because of the fact that they did not have this access to the truth of God. They were depending on, on the priests. They were depending on the church. And one of the things that's very interesting that I found is when I started to, uh, I, I picked up a copy of the catechism of uh, Martin Luther, is that Martin Luther said that when the process came, to teach the ref, you know, the the, the Reformation uh, theology, the first thing that he discovered was that many of the priests were actually ignorant of what the gospel was, so that he had to teach them what the gospel was in order for them to be able to deliver that gospel uh, to the people. So, uh, I want to. Uh, I was going to make one other point, but I want to give uh, you gentlemen a, a chance to speak. So I'm going to start with you, brother James. Well, is there anything that you'd like to add to this particular uh, issue of the education? Yes. So when you see that um, now, all these all, all these people are now reading the word, right? And and whether they knew how to read at the time or somebody read it to them, it was much 
easier at, uh, at that time. Um, so I want to bring up the scriptures from Ephesians 4, um, 24 and 25. And it says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So this Reformation now is bringing everybody much more biblical, much more centered in the truths, right, of the gospel and of the scriptures. The truth that is going to come out of it is, is it's also going to touch every single facet of our lives, right? So to the point is when it came down to education, they're going to speak the truth or at least the truth to what they, what they have at the time. I mean, we can't say that, well, they find out something that they thought was true was wrong. Well, they're, they're going to just continue to teach it. No, they would change. And, and you've seen that throughout history. Now in the last hundred years or so, we're seeing a little bit of a difference, but the truth is coming out. So you're speaking the truth. So now education in its purest form has to be true. It has to be the truth coming out because if you're not getting actual truth, the, the education would be um, corrupted. It would be wrong. It, it would be falsehoods. So you're seeing the truth that is coming out and is being taught to the masses. And of course, you have people making decisions for themselves and interpreting things here and there. But for the most part, the truth is being set out. And that is the rise of, of, of better philosophical thinking and what we've talked about earlier, scholasticism, right, of, of, uh, the, of the scholastic theology. And eventually, the way that we were to do science and the way that it, it promoted this learning of this world and what this world is, uh, is made of and, and what is going on that, you know, it's not explicitly brought out in the scriptures now we can see it and say wow look how glorious and how amazing of a god that we have and that is all done by the true education that that came out because of all this it was not being suppressed anymore in a general sense we can always find places where it was being suppressed but in a general sense now this truth was going out and it was trickling down on every single thing amen so we see the blessing in, in the reform of education that that brought. Brother Johnny, I'd like to, in essence, close with your comments uh, on this yes, issue, if uh, you have any. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, just I'll be very brief. I just wanted to say that one of the things about the Protestant Reformation, given that we're right now we're talking about how this affected education, it, this also had an impact because during the Protestant Reformation, in and, and the, to a certain degree, you know, because we come from a Hispanic background, I come from a Hispanic family, and uh, there's a lot of Roman Catholics. And so one of the things that my great-grandmother used to tell uh, my mother and my aunts is that we shouldn't read the Bible because it's too confusing. We need the priest to tell us what it means or so, something along those lines. When, when Luther uh, was teaching and preaching and writing, one of the things that he emphasized is private interpretation, something that the Roman Catholic Church frowned upon. What Luther was teaching is that we as Christians not only have the right, but also the responsibility of interpreting the scriptures and are held accountable for doing that. We're supposed to interpret the scriptures 
properly. And I think that this this would be a good video for the future to do one on hermeneutics. But when, when we're dealing with, with the subject of, of uh, interpret private interpretation, which is part of the education, because back then uh, using the Bible and using catechism was actually part of the education of the schools, uh, which is such a far cry from what we have in the school system today in, in, here in the United States. So when, when you're talking about private interpretation, we're, we're saying, hey, you have the responsibility to pick up your Bible, read it, and try to interpret it properly and not come up with your own strange interpretations. And I have, I know people and uh, brother Eric and brother James have heard me tell stories about some of my relatives who say some pretty fascinating things <laughs> about their, the way they handle the scriptures. But, but the issue is that we need to try to interpret the text properly and we are responsible for it and we have to pay attention to the grammar. If we, if we don't know what a word means, uh, you can look it up in an English dictionary, but if you want to do careful analysis, pick up a, a concordance, pick up a lexicon or a Bible dictionary to learn what the word means in the original language. Try to do word studies, how a word can mean different things. And, and because we're responsible, because in the book of James, James says that, that teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. And so you, when you're a teacher, we need to be careful that what we're teaching is accurate to the word of God. Because aren't because if we are if we're perverting the word of God and twisting the word of God as Second uh, Peter chapter three verses fifteen and sixteen warns us about, then we're going to be held accountable for the things that we say. It's funny that you mentioned that, brother, because one of the things that I find interesting is that when you have, for instance, uh, your your grandmother saying, "Oh, we need to listen to the priest who interprets." What did the Reformation do with the issue of the priesthood? Do we have priests today? Mm -hmm. yeah, brother Johnny, brother James, do we have priests today? Are you, if you're yes. talking about the Christian church, we have yes. the high priest. See, my point is, yeah. that's what Luther talked about. Yeah. What Luther said was that he believed in the priesthood of every believer. So that means that we all have to deal with the scriptures. Just the way the Catholic Church believes that the priests, see, they have a different priesthood, and we don't agree with their priesthood. That's why we do not call our authorities, right? Our, our guides, we do not call them priests. We call them elders. We call them pastors, right? But part of it is because that kind of priest, the priest that offers the sacrifice, who is that? That's Christ, right? But we are priests. How are we priests? Because we are mediator of what? We are mediators of the gospel, you know? And so because we have to be mediators of the gospel, we it's so important that we be educated and that we know our Bibles. And that's why it's so important and that's why the Reformation is so important, because the concept of sola scriptura and learning that, right, is so pivotal to being able to properly uh, live the Christian life. You know, so I want to thank you guys uh, for joining us today for the show. I think it was uh, an intriguing show because uh, as we've studied this, you know, you really see the, uh, the great effects of the uh, Reformation. And uh, I want to remind you that we not only have the YouTube that we offer, but we also have podcasts that we offer if you want to be able to listen to the show, if you're not able to join us live or, or watch the uh, videos because they could be quite long and sometimes we don't have the time to sit and watch, you could listen to them. And so you can go on Apple Music, uh, you can go on uh, Amazon and, and the different podcasts. Many of our phones actually have uh, podcasts, podcasts, uh, podcast availability in them. If you look there, look us up. Look us up uh, as a Christian Thunder World and we're also on join us. 
Oh, and also, yes, an audible. And that's why I'm saying to look it up because there are different, uh, different, we're also on Spotify. So there's different uh, platforms that we're in. So if you look on your phone and you look at the podcast area, you should be able to uh, get it. But I do want to thank you for uh, joining us. So we ask you to please uh, share, you know, to like or subscribe to our show, you know, and to be able to also comment that if you have any questions, remember that we can take your questions and in uh, future shows, we can, we can answer them today. We went a bit long, so we didn't take any questions, but we are grateful for you having joined us, joining us. And we just ask you to remember these shows are, are being done to educate you because theology is not something that's just for pastors and scholars. It's also for people like you. And because of the fact that today we learned that each one of us is a priest, right? We are a nation of priests. It is important that we learn these things. So thank you so much. God bless you. And we look forward to seeing you in uh, two weeks when we do the, our, next, our next broadcast. Thank you.